a one, a two, a two, a three. Dude, we've done this voice before, I, I and it's uh, who is it? It's from Wreck It Ralph, the the mayor from Wreck It Ralph, right? Oh, <laughs> King Candy or something. Yeah, that too. Yeah, uh, I was doing the uh, Tootsie Roll Pop Owl. Oh yeah. <laughs> Welcome to episode 438 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back for another episode. What do we have on the agenda today, Brian? A packed one. We're talking about building in public, but for designers at tech companies, we got some cool work to look at, tweet threads to dissect, an old blog post to examine. And then in the sidebar, we're going to be talking about public critique. Almost like a meta-analysis of last week's conversation about the Figma tab icon redesign. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be a juicy sidebar. And we have a ton of new jobs on the job board. Holy hey. shit. Well, yeah. uh, we'll we'll get to that when we get to that, but we're we're gonna adjust the format because we have been overwhelmed, <laughs> overwhelmed with cool jobs for designers. Uh, oh, oh, the capital H. <laughs> overwhelmed with a capital H. You really got to think about that one. <laughs> Well, with that packed agenda, let's dive in. Marshall, this week we're supported by Zeppelin. Zeppelin, you know, they notice a trend. Designers trying to explain their design intention by adding arrows, lines, shapes, and other layers to their Figma file. Just a bunch of junk that makes it hard to edit, make changes every time a screen is added or removed. So they built Flows, a fast and effortless way to create and outline user flows and journeys. You can learn more at zeppelin.io slash features slash flows. I'll have a link to a YouTube video with a demo. That's Z-E-P-L-I-N dot I-O. Thank you, Zeppelin. Thanks, Zeppelin. We also have a healthy, healthy group. Oh, yeah. Of very important pixels. Join in the design details hot tub today. Come on <laughs> in. The water's warm. Yeah, luckily it's like a thousand person hot tub. It is a 800 person hot tub right now. <laughs> We got room to spare, Brian. If uh, soaking in a tub of hot, heavily chlorinated water sounds attractive to you, uh, boy, do we have a deal. <laughs> Just don't dunk your head. That's all I ask. Yeah, do not dunk your head. <laughs> Welcome to the, the hot tub for very important pixels. Vincent Vandermeulen, Mr. Micronaut, Dominic Holmes, David Pierce, Tyler Nishida, Erzhao Song, Robert Bai, James, Paula Piscina, Anthony Schmiedler, Adrian Spiegelt, James Cipriano, Space Lemon, <laughs> Space Lemon, hey, Hugo, Mark Gill, Dylan Lucas, and Garen Holterman. What a list, Brian. Wow. I'm going to give myself 80% accuracy. Yeah. I well, tried my best. With a list so plentiful, you know, you got to figure there's going to be some inaccuracies, but mm-hmm. welcome, everybody. Welcome to the fam. If you didn't know, we're a listener-supported podcast, uh, currently constructing a hot tub for just about 800 people over at <laughs> patreon.com slash design details, where for just a buck a month, just a buck a month, you can slide on into this bubbly JQs of design details bonus episodes. <laughs> this metaphor has gone too far. <laughs> <laughs> Sit back, relax, unwind those tense après ski muscles and enjoy bonus episodes every week. It's just a buck a month. Just a buck a month. Just a buck a month for an extra episode. Today, we're talking about navigating public design critique and uh, figuring out how we can do that here on the show and and do it maybe even more in public on the internet in front of other human beings. So if you want to hear about public design critique, 
uh, as well as getting access to our entire backlog of bonus content and double apps going forward every week. Head to patreon.com slash design details and sign up. See you in the sidebar. All right, Marshall. Main topic time. Main topic time, Brian. So I sent you a tweet this week mm-hmm. from uh, one old, old fam of the pod, uh, past guest Alex Cornell, Ooh. who dropped a dope tweet thread dissecting the new podcast player interface that they shipped on the Substack iOS app. And it is a thread with a handful of high-quality videos. Mm-hmm. TBD, uh, we're trying to dis- dissect and, and tell if these are real production app screen recordings or if these are just Alex's Galaxy Brain origami prototypes. My bet is they're prototypes. But videos of some really lovely designs and interactions. And very tastefully, they're capping off the Twitter thread. Alex, you know, does a little call to action that they built this new podcast interface on Substack in a month. Under a month. Under one month between design and engineering and said, you know, if that sounds appealing, come work with us. Uh And I just thought, holy shit, what an advertisement. And I can't imagine a better way to get the word out about your design team's care for craft while also the velocity at which you ship. And so I saw this tweet thread and I was like, damn, this is like a competitive advantage over big tech because big tech, these bigger companies tend to be so much more secretive about the process that they take to arrive at shipping a product. And that's for a lot of reasons. But, you know, at a smaller startup, you can kind of get around that. The second thing is that this reminded me of a very old blog post from Paul Stamatiu, a.k.a. Stammy, who worked at Twitter for nine years, I think. He left earlier this year or late last year. And he published a post back in February of 2015 called Designing Twitter Video. And it is a in-depth, long-ass blog post explaining the nitty-gritty all the way down to like screenshots of prototyping code with Framer yeah, yeah, of how they built Twitter video. And I remember in 2015, this post blew up because everyone was like, holy shit, we're actually getting to see how somebody at one of these big companies prototypes. Like, show me the code. Show me the pixels behind the scenes, right? And so anyways, I just feel like there's something here where it's so uncommon to see high-quality behind-the-scenes artifacts like this, that this has just got to be such a huge competitive advantage for companies trying to hire designers in these in these trying times. <laughs> uh, and I wanted to get your reaction, and maybe we could even talk about some of the pixels of you know the Substack podcast player, which is nice on its own. But yeah, what's your reaction to the thread like this overall, the behind-the-scenes stuff? Uh, yeah, I love it, man. <laughs> I love seeing this stuff, especially when it's presented as nicely as this. And I think to your point, like the the capping it off and saying, you want to come work here? Stuff looks cool, right? Like uh, the idea that this was designed and built in under a month is incredible for somebody who works at, at a big tech company like me where it takes quarters to do anything substantial. So yeah, pixels aside, this is just such a cool thing to share. I've been thinking about what are the tools at a smaller company's disposal to hire in this market where like frankly big tech is able to throw so much money at candidates that it can make it really hard for smaller organizations to compete and often they can't unless they've raised an exorbitant amount of money 
they can't compete on salary, especially when part of that salary is, or at least part of the total comp package is public stock, like stock in a publicly traded company, AKA cash. And, you know, this might be the most compelling advantage for me or like most attractive thing you could offer besides comp, which is autonomy and velocity. Does anything else come to mind? Like what else do smaller companies have? I guess maybe like early team, right? Like specific individuals that that people might know of and want to work with. I don't know. I guess like the opportunity to start from scratch. Some people like that clean slate experience. Establishing something from nothing. But I I think that the best thing about this thread is that it's, or maybe what you're latching onto is that it's show, don't tell. This isn't just saying, hey, you can be autonomous here and we can work on stuff fast. Like, no, we'll, we'll show you actually what we're working on and, and the speed at which it can happen, which rings true with a lot of things, right? You know, the whole show, don't tell thing. This works for getting a team excited about a new project or something. If you can show them mocks or show them a prototype, even if it's going to be a lot of work, you can get people excited a lot more easily than just saying, hey, we want to make all these changes. Yeah, 100%. You know, one company that's been doing the show don't tell, but in a slightly weird way lately is Twitter. And I have to hand them a lot of credit because in the last year, they I think they have just like a handful of PMs that were basically blessed to share stuff that hadn't shipped yet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've been seeing some behind-the-scenes stuff, like early, early mocks. We, well, we would get like PM-created wireframes yeah, PM of mocks, ideas yeah. being tweeted, being like, hey, we're thinking of building this. And that was like <laughs> almost too early. It was kind of <laughs> spooky. I'm like, ah. Let, let the cake bake a little bit longer. Yeah, just a tiny bit longer. Uh, but Twitter, yeah. So Twitter would be an example of a company that's done this well, uh, or at least I think is maybe the only big tech company that is this transparent with sharing work in progress. I mean, big companies share work in progress regularly. They just don't do it publicly, right? Like they're in private (laughs) research (laughs) sessions, right? So like they're putting their stuff in front of people's eyes. It's just not everybody who has the link. Why do you think more companies don't do that? I mean, working inside one, an obvious reason that comes to mind is it takes a lot of time. Like I imagine that this thread, even though it's only a handful of tweets and videos, probably took Alex several hours to orchestrate and then eventually post and then probably respond to people. Like it's a good investment of time here. Oh, totally. And, you know, as an IC, like sometimes you ship something and you're like, I don't want to market it. I'm cool to just like move on to building the next thing, you know? Hmm. Well, to answer your question, I think the reason big companies don't do this more often is because, well, one, you know, competitive advantage, if you're trying to launch something brand new, you don't want to let your competitors know about it ahead of time until after it's already out there. But uh, I think a, a bigger thing is the same reason that whenever you watch a, a new game trailer at E3 or Video Game Awards or something like that, there's always a big disclaimer plastered across the bottom of the screen that says alpha gameplay footage subject to change or whatever. It's like anything that you show, by the time you actually launch it, especially at a larger organization where things take a while to launch, there is so much opportunity for that thing to change. And you don't want to make a false promise to your users of like, hey, check it out. Here's the thing we're going to do. Actually, no, three months later, here's a totally different thing or here's a widely changed thing that you like the other one, but now and then you end up in a whole PR fiasco. Isn't that, I feel like that's kind of what Twitter did. Like they would share stuff so early 
And they would even like ship beta things. I remember when they shipped spaces, it didn't have captions. And so the people who aren't able to hear like revolted and they had to roll it back really quickly or something and like go back and fill it in. So yeah, there's just, there's just risk, right? Yep. Like drawing attention to yourself on launch day when things might possibly break. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's almost just more simple than that. It's just like, this isn't prioritized. This isn't part of the expectations for an IC designer to publish something like this. Like it's pretty rare that, you know, a lot of companies have like a, Company dot design domain, and it's sort of the hub for their design team to write blog posts or host a podcast or share resources. Facebook design was probably most famous for the, the device mockups and the hand mocks. Mm, mm-hmm, mm. And then they started writing some blog posts, but they're kind of few and far between. And I think it, it just takes so much time yes. out of their team's schedule that it just never gets prioritized. It's like it's such a good idea. I think more companies should have a presence like that. But the operational overhead of standing that up and then writing to it consistently, especially you know when people on the team might have varying degrees of writing skills and presentation skills, so then you need an editor, then you need your content team mm-hmm. to come in. You need a team for this, just this. You need a team, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's why that's why these things are so rare, like mm-hmm. this thread from Alex and or impressive. the blog post from Stammy. Yeah, yeah, it's really rare. Hmm. I feel like this thread is also an example of like, this almost feels to me better than a case study. Like a lot of designers will put together case studies like, here's the problem, here's the research, here's the data, here's the prototype, here was the mock-ups, wireframes, then we shipped it and then we had the outcomes. Like, you know, by the book, this is what a case study looks like. But I feel like these eight or so tweets trump any case study. And this is where it's hard. It's like Alex is good and the mock-ups are good. But it just also brings to mind like our idea of what a case study should be or like what's valuable to show in a case study. I feel like we also have overthought that these tweets are a case study. Like there's so many thoughtful decisions that went into this that you can kind of get a sense for who this designer is, how they think, what they prioritize, their craftsmanship, their attention to details. Uh, This would not have worked as a case study, I don't think. Or, or, or a big blog post. It was the the lightweight nature of the Twitter thread where videos just autoplay as you scroll that made this work, in my opinion. Yeah. So I, I don't know what the takeaway is here. Like, I, I would be surprised to see a, a Twitter-first designer portfolio, but maybe, maybe, <laughs> you know, I've seen people link to Medium posts with a case study. Maybe in the future people will link to a Twitter thread and be like, this is my work. I would prefer this any day to any portfolio project, you know, in a slideshow or whatever. Like one overview video with several detail videos. Like, oh yeah, I can learn so much, partially because I can read between the lines. Like I don't need all of the exposition telling me what happened here. Like, tell me what your influences were. Tell me why you made specific decisions. But aside from that, like I can figure out what you're thinking. Yeah, which is where I think we got to be careful because obviously a podcast player is a pretty recognizable interface. Like you Mm -hmm. don't have to set a bunch of context up front Mm -hmm. or for people who work at either lesser known or just not as mainstream problem areas. It's like, all right, yeah, you probably need the context up front to, Mm -hmm. to to explain why this is even useful in the first place. But man. But... For people who are in that situation, I don't know, this comes up a lot. People are like, I, I work on something that's not, I don't know, quote unquote sexy. It's like harder to talk about and get people excited about. And my response to that is usually, 
people get excited about other people who are excited about a thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. And even if even if it's the most boring topic in the world, if you are excited and can teach somebody or or make it interesting, that makes you all the more stronger as a designer, right? So like, okay, not only can they design things for this problem area, but they can also make a boring topic interesting. And that's going to be particularly useful when we're trying to, I don't know, sell this or convince this person or, you know, do leadership reviews. Like this person I can trust to engage people. So yeah, anyways, I guess that's my my advice for people who might be frustrated by videos like this. Be like, well, my thing's not as simple or, or elegant or needs all this extra context. Like, well, figure out how to make it feel like this. Figure out how to make it feel exciting and interesting and I'm, I'm getting sucked into the next video that's autoplaying just a few inches away, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. Yeah, I, I wanted to know the next beat of the story. Like, yeah, yeah, then what? Do you want to linger on any of the pixels here? I thought there were some interesting design decisions. yeah. I don't know what to say, except we can just like articulate them and maybe say if we agree, disagree, what we like and dislike. Okay, yeah, this is off the cuff. We haven't prepared, but yeah, okay. let's do it. First thing I want to mention is putting the podcast player on the same Z-index plane mm-hmm. as the Substack issue. I don't know what they call it, blog post or an email. So it swipes up and pushes the email away versus... Uh, you know, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or even Pocket Cast, where if you open the currently playing thing, it opens more as a, a modal dialogue mm-hmm. on top. And when it's minimized, it lives as a child of the app frame, right? It's usually docked above the tab bar. This lives at the same level as the app. Exactly, exactly. It's the same pattern as having a draft email on the mail app. Exactly. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. And it's incredibly effective, especially with the small break between the two surfaces. Like it's very clearly like this is the browse surface up here and this is the playback surface down here. It does the right thing at the right time. But yeah, it it, it creates an interesting effect of this like shrunken, almost iPhone 4 size app above the mini player. You know what I mean? (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Here's what I was thinking, though. How would you make this work on iPad? Assuming that they have an iPad app someday, how would you make this interaction work? Would it be horizontal, maybe? So it lives in a sidebar crunched up, and then you can pull it out to full size? I mean, Apple handles this really strangely. I think they've gotten better at it with Apple Music, but the transition used to be very trigger-based rather than gesture-based. It's like you crossed the threshold and it just completed the animation, which never felt very great. This is very one-to-one hmm. draggy. Yeah, would it pull out from the side? Would it be an o- like? Would it make more sense as an overlay on iPad? Because presumably on iPad, like you're not going to fill. It depends on how they handle sidebars and things like that. But presumably, you wouldn't want the content to fill the full width. So you, in a lot of reader style apps, you end up with just white space on the left and right, hugging your content in. That would be a natural place to maybe float a player. Yeah, I mean that's what's happening here, right? They're sharing the space. The space just happens to be very small. When you have more yeah. space, now these things can live next to each other. Maybe there's a you know a draggy handle to make one larger than the other, like you know, play with the ratio of those left to right. But yeah, I would expect them to live at the same time. More pixels, do more stuff with it, right? What do you think of the disadvantages of having the player like this at the bottom sitting on the same plane as the rest of the app? Um, well, I would say that the app gets fewer vertical pixels. And maybe that is true because of that space between the browse surface and the playback surface but it's only a few pixels it's like you know it's negligible 
I don't know. And maybe you have to reach over the mini player to tap stuff. I don't know. I, I don't think there's a whole lot of drawbacks, especially with the rounding of the corners at the bottom. It really like helps differentiate the two surfaces. I feel like this is one of those things that only it feels possible now that so many people have bigger phones and we're only going to have increasingly bigger phones. Like the mini is going to be disconnected, but this on a mini would be taking up a pretty meaningful amount of space. I got to imagine looks like this is on just an iPhone pro. I'm thinking more of like an older iPhone, like a home button phone. Are those still supported? Oh yeah. You know? Okay. What else? What else stood out from the, the video? Okay, the uh, big fat seek bar. God, that scrubber. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you think of it? Um, I am more a fan. Well, just in general, on the the now playing screen, whatever uh, we want to call it. Like, there's a lot of relatively square corners, which I'm a fan of rounder, more pill shaped things. But it's very useful for this particular thing where the playhead is a vertical line that needs to get all the way to the left on pixel zero and all the way to the right for 100%, you know. Right, but most people solve that by using a slider with a thumb, right? Well, there is kind of a thumb, right? There's a leading edge of like a four-pixel white bar. It's just a line, right? Yeah, yeah, Yep, but I think there is a minimum position of that. Anyways, you'd have to heavily round that. Like, if you went full pill shape on this thing, I guess I'm saying, when you get to the extremes, like, you're just a sliver of the progress. Oh, right, right, right. I see what you're saying. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny how one of those one corner radius decision like locks you into a bunch of downstream decisions. If, yeah. If they wanted that to be a pill shape, like if they wanted a pill shaped feel for everything, then it would have made this the scrubber, what do you call it? The seeker? Playhead. Yeah. It would have made that feel out of place. And then as soon as you make the playhead square, <laughs> it's like, all right, well, now we're on a grid. Mm-hmm. So now all of the controls under it and the display stuff for the time. Those now want to be square because the thing above it is square and they family and a lockup together. Yeah. So now all these downstream decisions get made because you've made one choice about the scrubber. But that's how it works, right? I think the, what do you think about that gradient background? Uh, when he starts scrolling? Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, that's a common thing, like this fade off thing. I've actually seen it a lot with blur as well. Like, for example, the if you scroll the yeah. app library up, it, it fades away with a blur, which is kind of a strange uh-huh. look. This is just a monochrome thing. I guess, actually, it would be... It's probably just a straight-up gradient mask because there's colorful blurred artwork in the background that it's not doing some overlay thing on. What about it? What do you, what do you think about it? What do you think about that fade? Would you rather a what harsh fade? line, like a, a straight line? No, I think it's nice. It looks yeah, good. it's great. Okay, what else? What other details? You mentioned the play button on the right on the episode page uh-huh. that stood out to you as interesting. And actually from a shape standpoint, that container for the podcast cover artwork on the left side and the circular play button on the right side, you end up with a rounded squared off left edge and a 100% rounded like pill shaped right edge. Yeah, it's one of those weird things where it's like you got the best of both worlds by making that button, by placing it on the right, you were able to do this weird thing where you have this unique shape, different corner radius on either side, but it doesn't feel bad. You know, I probably wouldn't have done it though. I, I would have done it. I would have gotten that far and I would have been like square on the left, round on the right. This is kind of weird. And then I would have been like, well, I saw it and then I'd delete it and make something else. Yeah. Would you keep it? I think the thing that's throwing me off is the placement of the play button on the right. I feel like 
in Spotify and Apple Music, they do the same thing. They put the play button on the right side of a track list item. But this looks and feels a little bit more like your typical web player. I was envisioning a SoundCloud embed or in our case, a Simplecast embed. And those kinds of iframed in web players are always have the, the play button left aligned. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I would have probably, yeah, maybe mocked it and not used it. I would have felt like maybe people expect the play button on the left with this sort of visual treatment. But I don't know, it came out fine. I, you know, there's prominence on the the artwork. I don't know how important that is in this context when you're scrolling through the an edition of a Substack that you're subscribed to. I, I'm not sure if that's important or not. You know, there's a slightly different scrubber, like a more minimal playhead in that mini embed, which is actually your more traditional slider UI design, which is a thin line with a circular thumb placed on top of it. So it's a little bit of a mix. It's it's just mixed across the board. Corner radius, placement, thumb style, scrubber style. Let me uh, let me maybe devil's advocate for you here, or uh-huh. against you, <laughs> not for you. Um, in the mini player, the collapsed playing surface, the play button is on the right side, like directly below where it appears in that lockup we were just talking about on the, on the episode page. So there's some uh, muscle memory there. Also, the artwork in the list view, where there's like a list of an episode, there's a bold title, and then the artwork is on the right, and the play button is superimposed over that artwork. So the play buttons are always on the right, which if you're right-handed, as I think... 93? What's the percentage of right-handed people? I don't know, but whatever it is, I'm in the minority. I'm, I'm a lefty, and so reaching shit like this is always a pain. About 90% are right-handed. Yeah, so this is uh, ergonomic for the vast majority of people to put it on that right side. My guess is the entire cell is tappable and does the play action. Actually, no. The rest of the cell, the text area, takes you to the episode page, and tapping directly on the cover art plays the episode. A lot of interpretation here. I'm not sure about any of this stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, maybe one last thing to uh, mention here is how the cover art collapses on scroll when you kind of change your intent to browsing through the queue. It says, okay, you don't need all the space up here for the album art. Let me just shrink this out of the way and give you more room for the list below. It's interesting also that there is an explicit queue button affordance in the middle of those three actions below the scrubber that does the same thing as if you just scrolled up a little bit. Which is interesting too, because the queue is always visible, which is another decision that most other podcast apps or even just any audio app in general mm-hmm. doesn't make. Most of the time, queue will be hidden, right? It's heavily diminished. Like it's it's dimmed. Yeah, I mean, it all makes sense. The use of the gradients, the way the, the queue scrolls behind the current player and you get a little gradient overlay, but the gradient matches the, the color sampling from the currently playing you know what? artwork. My guess is that's not just like a color sampled gradient. That's actually a mask on the view that fades off at the top. Oh, I see what you're saying. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. This is one of those things that's probably really easy to do on iOS and basically impossible to do on Android. Yeah, I think I was reading through the replies. I think one person was like, okay, how's this going to work on Android, though? Are you going to be able to pull off any of these effects? Cool. Well, we have exhausted this topic. Maybe we'll need to cut some of that, Marshall. This was pretty long. No, I'll split it up into a couple chapters. We'll have a uh, sharing in public kind of a section and then a design details section. Well, let's move along then to 
the job board. Oh, this job board, Brian. Debuted oh, last episode. Boy. We got a whole new set for you, Brian. Overwhelmed with a capital H. Overwhelmed. So we have lots of jobs, and basically it would be unrealistic for us to try and rattle them all off here. We also heard from a couple of people that, you know, if you're not looking for a job, this isn't the most relevant section. So just want to call out right now. This is a chapter. You can feel free to skip this every week. But we're also going to cap it. We'll just list out four jobs. That means we'll have a little bit of a backlog. So at any time, if you want to you know, see who's hiring and go check out awesome companies that are hiring designers, that's at designdetails.fm slash jobs. Yeah, there are more jobs than we are listing here. But on the podcast today, Mercury is hiring product designers. Mercury powers the banking stack for companies like Linear, Maven, and Mighty. You can join them to build beautiful software for founders, Learn about the remote-friendly team and roles at mercury.design. Uh, disclaimer, Mercury is a financial technology company that works with banks. We had to say that. <laughs> uh, it's in the copy. Thank you, Mercury. Thanks, Mercury. Uh, we also have Current. Current is on a mission to help people create better financial outcomes for their lives, and they're hiring a talented senior mobile product designer with great visual design and UX skills. You'll be involved in the full product development cycle, from early research and product strategy to design and developer handoff. We also got Patreon. Hey. Patreon, building the future of the creative economy. And they are looking for product designers of all levels to solve the needs of creators and members on their platform. Their roles are based in San Francisco and New York. East Coast, West Coast, Best Coast, wherever you are, hit up Patreon. And lastly, we have Raycast. Raycast makes it simple, fast, and delightful to control your tools. They're looking for an experienced individual to join their small team to redesign and improve core app functionality, tools to enable developers to create new extensions, and rethink components across the platform. Thank you, Raycast. Love me some Raycast. And thanks, everybody. Yeah, thank you all. And uh, the rest of the awesome companies who have jumped on the job board, once again, that's at designdetails.fm slash jobs. If your company is hiring designers and wants to get the word out here, uh, hit us up. You can DM me or just go to designdetails.fm slash jobs to uh, post a listing to an open role, and we will call it out on a future episode. Get you connected with the designers. Yeah. All right. Cool things time? Cool things. What you got for me, Brian? So this week, I just want to shout out not a new thing, but a thing that I have struggled to adopt for years, and it's finally slowly but steadily starting to click, and that is TweetBot, the third-party Twitter app. Yeah, this is fascinating to me because you've always been like a hardcore first-party Twitter app user. Here's what made me start switch. The first-party Twitter clients do... I'm just going to sound a little bit like an asshole here, but there, I, there's enough people who like tweets of mine that the notification counter on Twitter oh, is wow. always lit up. This and humble I have brag. Humble brag. I'm sorry. <laughs> But this is a real problem for me from a mental health and attention perspective. Like, I like clearing badges. Oh, I, I feel that, yeah. I, I'm a red dot basher. Uh -huh. I love inbox zeros. And when I have another notification center with a badge, I just got to tap it. And so I would find myself obsessively clearing this badge. And 99% of the time, it's just someone liking a tweet. And it'll just keep resurfacing every time someone likes a tweet. Even if it's a tweet from five years ago, there's your badge, there's your badge. And so it treats the event of someone liking your tweet with the same prominence as someone mentioning you or someone retweeting you or someone tagging you in a photo uh, or someone following you. Like all of these things sit at the same plane. I have every single filter on. I have every quality filter on. 
you can see just mentions, but again, then you're missing quote tweets, new followers, and tags and images, and also the mentions subtab on Twitter.com's notifications just doesn't work. Like they have a caching problem. I hope their team knows this, but it just never works. It's always behind, always out of sync with what's in the main notifications tab. Anyways, so Tweetbot is very opinionated. By default, their quote-unquote notifications tab is just mentions only. And for me, that's the highest signal type of notification to receive is someone replying to a thought and like having trying to have a conversation. So I definitely don't want to miss those. And then there's really nowhere else you can like optionally customize their navigation bar to get access to a feed of people who like your stuff. But I have that off. And so it made Twitter a much more bearable, quiet place. I don't feel like I have to get to an inbox zero in Tweetbot. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is they have some really cool stuff with scroll syncing. And another thing that Tweetbot does that I appreciate is it is a chronological feed of tweets. Mm -hmm. This is the reason to use it in my mind, yeah. Yeah, maybe most people's main reason. And it's a different kind of feeling of wanting to get caught up where it's a little bit more feasible to feel like, you know, I've followed people who I want to see what they have to say and I can get caught up and not get inundated with algorithmic suggestions, you know, tweets from people who I don't follow, but they appear in my timeline on the first party apps because someone I follow liked one of their random tweets or something like that. Anyways, this is a long ramble just to say Tweetbot is a much calmer Twitter experience. So if anyone is like me and is tired of those badges, it's designed to give you signal and clear out the noise, whereas the first-party Twitter apps are designed to use that noise, those like notifications, to just constantly suck you back in. If that drives you nuts, check out Tweetbot. Cool thing, Brian. What you got? My cool thing this week is a little smart home thing I just picked up recently. This uh, super cheap investment if you already have some like actions and automation set up. There are these little NFC tag stickers. They're like the size of a quarter and the thickness of a sticker. And they can store a very small amount of information, including the ability to trigger a smart home event. So I've got a few of these around the house. I bought like 50 of them for 20 bucks or something like that. They're super cheap. Uh, just like a roll of them. <laughs> like, you know, if you're buying a, a roll of stickers, but they happen to have little coils of wire. If you look through them at a light, you can see all the internal workings. I'm not sure how the battery works, like how, how long they'll last. But that's what I was wondering. I've bought the same thing before and I, I'm like, how the fuck does this work? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's kind of magic magnets i don't know (laughs) (laughs) but we're talking about this ahead of time and you asked me where this kind of falls in the convenience hierarchy yeah you're you're the smart home guru and every time i'm over at your place you do everything with voice i was like why do you need these stickers what's the point so okay so real quickly in my mind the hierarchy of uh, what I was jokingly referring to as Maslow's hierarchy of convenience is like uh-huh. uh, from top to bottom, like most convenient to least is automation. So it just happens automatically based on time of day or your behavior. Next down is voice. So you say something and it happens. Third is like you have a shortcut in home or something that you can pull down in the control center and get to with a couple taps. Next down is like actually going into the app. And next down is like, walking across the room and pushing a physical button. Uh-huh. I currently exist at that plane. <laughs> at the lowest level. Of convenience. I, I, I am 
You're at the bottom of the pyramid. Neanderthal dragging my club behind me on the way to turn off the light switch. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I guess the question is like, where do, where do these little NFC stickers fit in here? And I think they're probably right at the same level as voice. The reason being they're super convenient from a standpoint of triggering them. Like it's one tap, essentially. You put your phone right next to the thing and it triggers the action. Same thing as like you say one short phrase and it triggers the action. But in the same way that sometimes you have your hands full and you can't get your phone out or whatever, so you need voice, sometimes you're in a meeting and you can't talk because someone else is talking or you shouldn't be seen talking because you're supposed to be paying attention. So having a thing that you can just quietly tap your phone against and perform an action. uh, For me, I have it like setting the state of my outside my door light to let my partner know that I'm in a meeting. If that doesn't happen automatically, I can just tap my phone on my desk and it'll start working. I also have one on my nightstand. I just tap it and it turns out all the lights and make sure all the doors are locked and all the shades are down. It's really useful. So I don't know. I'm not sure I'll have a ton of use cases for these things, but for the two or three that I've found so far, they're pretty useful. Yeah. The one use case I heard of, which I think is pretty compelling, is you can attach these to the food dispensers you have in your kitchen. So for example, I I put one I don't use it anymore, but I put one on my coffee grinder. So every time you grind coffee, you just tap your phone and it opens a pre-populated form for the health app where you can log your caffeine intake. And I can imagine someone who is tracking calories or just doing any sort of like health-related diet tracking. You might stick these on all your, whatever, your drink boxes or your fridge or your water dispenser, like just a quick way to tap your phone and open that pre-filled composer so you can easily log the things you've consumed. That use case makes a lot of sense to me just because doing that manually every time, opening your phone, opening the app, going through all the menus to get to the thing that you're trying to log, like that sounds like a huge pain in the ass. So yeah, the NFC sticker makes sense. It's great. Yeah, that's a great example. The video that I was watching, the example the guy gave was his vitamins every day. He had a to-do that would show up and when he tapped his phone on the sticker that he put on the lid of the vitamin bottle, it would automatically mark that task as done. Now, that's just vitamins, but if you have to take a bunch of pills throughout the day, you can imagine that would get really useful if like, you take the pill, you tap your phone on the thing, and now you know which pill you took. Anyways, NFC tag sticker thing. Super cheap and fun to play around with. Cool thing. Well, this has been episode 438 of the Design Details podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Let us know what you thought. We're on Twitter, as always, at Design Details FM. If you want to support the show and get access to today's sidebar, 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 talking about navigating, critiquing in public, as well as our backlog of sidebars and future sidebars going forward, that's at patreon.com slash design details. Sign up and support us for just a buck a month. It's just a buck a month. And if you're looking for a new job, if you're on the market, head to designdetails.fm slash jobs to check out some of the coolest companies hiring designers right now. Now. Otherwise, if you have a topic you want us to cover in a future episode, be sure to DM us or open an issue on our GitHub. Links to all of these things in the show notes and more. That's it. Catch you next week. Bye. But uh, I think a, a bigger thing is a point I just had. I'm, I'm just watching this video loop over and over again. Uh-huh, and I keep uh-huh. losing my train of thought. Sorry. I know. I got to stop it. Hold on. <laughs>